Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. I'm Matthew Epinet, Executive Director of the Center. This edition of the podcast features an interview with CBHD's current Robert D. Orr Fellow, Anna Valama. Anna began her work with us at CBHD in May of this year, 2021. And as part of her fellowship, she serves as managing editor of our Dignitas and Intersections publications. Before we turn to the interview, I want to share with you part of an email I recently received from a church leader who follows our work. The email read, At a difficult time for a family in my church, CBHD gave me the guidance I needed to help them navigate significant end-of-life issues. The family was grappling with how to make difficult decisions in accordance with the truths of their faith in Christ. Your unique insights as we talked on the phone and then in the CBHD materials that you sent allowed me to serve this family well, guiding them to make decisions that were in line with our faith and in line with caring well for their mother. I'm so deeply grateful to receive messages like this. It's because friends like you have given so generously to CBHD that we're able to provide assistance to help pastors and church leaders address situations like this. Scenarios involving difficult end-of-life treatment decisions, particularly those regarding ventilators and feeding tubes, are among the most common dilemmas I hear about in talking with pastors about bioethics. As you know, CBHD exists to serve as a resource for pastors and church leaders, to mentor the next generation of Christian bioethicists, to engage the academic arena of bioethics, and to uphold a Judeo-Christian Hippocratic approach to bioethics that emphasizes the dignity of every human being. In the almost two decades I've been working in the field of bioethics, I have never seen a greater demand for sound, reliable information addressing these issues from a biblical viewpoint. Because so many come to CBHD for information amidst difficult bioethics issues, it's vital that CBHD is able to provide thoughtful Christian resources. To continue meeting this need, I need your help. CBHD's central opportunities and thus our central challenges all hinge on funding. Friend, would you give a gift today partnering with CBHD to continue providing sound, reliable information from a Christian viewpoint on the pressing bioethical issues of our day? You can give online at cbhd.org. On any page of our website, simply click on Donate in the left-hand column. Thank you in advance. My guest in this episode of the podcast is Anna Valama, a PhD student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, who is currently serving as our Orr Fellow. The Robert D. Orr Endowed Fellowship supports a PhD student at Trinity's Divinity School who is committed to exploring the implications of biblical and theological perspectives for engaging medicine and technology. As you'll hear in the interview, Anna holds a double MA in Old and New Testament from Talbot School of Theology in Southern California. And through her PhD work here at Trinity, she's seeking to better her knowledge of the character of God. She also has significant personal experience as a hospital patient. And I know you'll appreciate hearing that part of her story. Here is an interview with CBHD Orr Fellow, Anna Valama. So tell us about yourself. Where are you from? How did you come to Trinity? And what, uh, what, have you, what were you doing before you got here? Yeah, so um, 
about myself. I mean, how far back do you want to go? Are we going all the way back to childhood? You know, you know I had a friend uh, this summer and we were talking and he said that when you meet someone, you should yeah. ask them, where were they born and where do they live now? So yeah. as many of the details between that that you want to fill in, that'd okay. be great. <laughs> cool. I like it. So I was born in Big Rapids, Michigan, right? Uh, I grew up mostly in Michigan. I moved around quite a bit. It's even in Michigan, I think I lived in maybe five or six different cities in Michigan itself. So I've moved around quite a bit. Um, I spent the longest in Detroit area. Uh, my dad's a pastor, but he was a second career pastor. So he was an automotive engineer first and hence a lot of the different moves. Um, yeah, outside of Michigan, uh, I've also lived in, let's see, Louisiana. Um, Iowa, California, spent a summer in Guatemala, obviously now Illinois. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, my dad's a pastor, grew up as a pastor's kid and all that that entails. Um, I would say overall, I had a really good experience with that. There's definitely the elements of expectations and things like that that I didn't love with that reality, but I think that's true of anyone. Um, but overall, I think it gave me a love for the church that I still have now. And I, I deeply care about the church and being involved in the church. And um, so beyond that, um, I would say I definitely went through a process of kind of reconciling with God. So I was a pastor's kid, but I had to come to this place of owning it for myself in a lot of ways, um, I played the part of being the good pastor's girl for a long time. And uh, I kind of came to a point of just being done with yeah. with playing the part. And, and was this in high school, college? I would say, I would say there was a couple different stages in there, <laughs> right? Which is true of all of us. So I would say there's a point where I would say, I really finally came to a recognition of the grace of God. And I would say that was in high school when I, when I finally said, I'm done with just playing the part. I realize how broken I am and I need the grace of God. Um, but then as I graduated high school, um, I had this very works-based theology mm -hmm. in my brain of, um, if I'm a good girl, God will give me all the good things in life. Yeah. And I had a lot of things I was struggling through and um, things that I wanted security in. And so I wanted to manipulate God into giving me those things. Yeah. And so um, I did a program called Mission Year where I went to inner city New Orleans for a year. And I thought, oh, what's the best way to be a good girl, right? Is <laughs> right. to be a missionary. And um, instead of God giving me all this goodness and all of my insecurities and all of my fears uh, and disappearing from that experience, it was kind of the exact opposite. And I, that year completely broke me in so many ways. Um, and I ended up coming back from that year just being really... Um, angry with God, angry with the world, angry with the church, just angry. I would just <laughs> <laughs> define that period as just a lot of anger. And um, in that, I think I was hungry for something to kind of squelch all of that anger. And so in my head, knowledge was the thing that would mm. quiet out all of my emotions, my strong emotions. Mm -hmm. And so 
I was heading into a community college at that time, and I was not discerning about what I kind of consumed into my being. And um, I had all these, you know, secular professors that was t- telling me it was illogical to believe in God. Mm-hmm. And why would you orient your whole life around this 2,000-year-old <laughs> book? And I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm already angry with God. So why not be done with him? And so I think that kind of thrust me into this, I would say, borderline agnostic phase that, um, I, yeah, it just, it, it pushed me into a place of darkness for a lot of years. Um, and it wasn't until I came to a place of reconciling with God and who he is in his character, even the dark parts or my perception of the dark parts of his character that I think I came to a place of really falling deeply in love with God and with Mm. scripture and all of those things. And that led you to college or graduate school? Yeah. So absolutely. So when I did my undergrad, I did my undergrad in psychology. So as I was heading into my undergrad, coming out of that community college Mm. time, um, part of what helped me to reconcile with God was going to Biola University where I was forced, I would never have chosen this on my own. I was forced to um, uh, take 32 units in Bible. Mm. And so those classes of um, wrestling through the character of God, wrestling through who he is, especially in the Old Testament, all of those elements Mm Uh, definitely were a key part of my kind of reconciling and and turning back towards God. And so as I reached the end of my undergrad time, you know, I still decided to finish out that degree in psychology, but Mm -hmm. I reached a point where I realized I didn't want to head on with the world of psychology like I had originally (laughs) planned. I didn't want to go into um, counseling. I didn't want to get a PsyD, all of those elements. I still love psychology and love studying it. And I think it's so important, but I realized I wanted to bring a different kind of healing into people's lives because I needed a different kind of healing. Mm. And that different kind of healing was reconciling with God. As I reconciled with God, I realized I reconciled in a lot of ways with mankind, right? Mm. So that horizontal reconciling created a vertical reconciling um, in a lot of ways. And so I wanted to do that same thing for others, help them come to know God better fully and holistically, even wrestling through the dark parts of who God is um, in a way that would instill trust and love and all of those elements in the same way that it did for me. So, so, but you, you chose Biola. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the grace of God in a lot of ways, truthfully, because no one forced me. No one, you know, again, my parents are Christians, but they were not saying, hey, Anna, you have to you go into- You should move out to California and right, go to the school. <laughs> right. They were actually against it. Um, yeah. I, I think because I had had these two years of community college and I had already had the secular side of things, I came mm-hmm. to a point for myself where I was like, I need to either- put God down completely, Mm -hmm. right? I was kind of in this agnostic phase. I need to either put God down completely 
or I need to reconcile with him. Mm. I don't want to be in this place of tension anymore. Mm. So I had the two years of community college. I had the two years of a secular education. And so I chose for myself that I wanted um, a Christian college. Now, Biola specifically, that was actually because I was confused about accreditation. <laughs> I thought I had to go to a school that was APA accredited, not realizing that that APA accreditation only comes into play at the, the doctorate level. Oh, okay. So, because okay. <laughs> Biola has a doctorate in psychology, I it was on my list when it never would have ended up there if I hadn't been confused about accreditation. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. I know. Isn't that funny? So, but then you um, you finished your degree in psychology and then moved on to do two master's degrees. I uh, did. Also there at Biola or I guess at Talbot That's at right. that point. That's right. Yeah. So, um, I think I, I knew I wanted to go into Old Testament. That, again, because I knew I wanted to dig into the darker parts of who God is. And that tends to be more in the old Testament than in the new Testament. Um, I knew I wanted to go into old Testament, but I think I also realized when you head into PhD, you're going to be heading into a more narrow and narrow field. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think especially because I was just coming off of this place of questioning who God was. And I was just still so hungry to just soak up as much as I could about who God is and what he's done in the world in a way that would create a real life change or a real relationship change mm -hmm. between him and I. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I wanted to have some foundation in New Testament as well. So it was really out of a devotional choice more than mm. anything that I, I did the double MA and it ended up working in my benefit in a lot of ways because like Ted's here, they actually require their students to have an MDiv or MDiv equivalency before coming in for PhD. Right. And I didn't do an MDiv, but the double MA <laughs> basically functioned as a MDiv equivalency. Okay. All so, right. so an MA in Old Testament and an MA in New Testament. Correct. Right. Yeah. 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 So I can imagine someone listening and they hear you mention the dark parts of God. Yeah. I th Maybe it'd be good to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just uh, it's, it's, um, it's not a phrase that I've heard applied to God a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, I don't know if I've heard that phrase either. I think that kind of came out of my own head. So you're welcome to use that if you want from here on out or completely abandon it. Um, yeah. I think just those aspects of God that we really wrestle with, I think especially today. So I should say this too. As I was in that borderline agnostic phase, um, I got really into the world of atheism, right? Like, Mm. Richard Dawkins, all of those elements. And so think about those elements that Richard Dawkins would pull out and say, look at this, look at this sadistic, masochistic, right? Yeah. Terrible God that these Christians worship. And that's really a, what a lot yeah. of his rhetoric is. It's so some, something like uh, when the children of Israel were, they go yeah. into a land and they were told, told to wipe out exactly the, all of the inhabitants of the land. That Conquest kind of thing. narratives, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, when it comes to someone sinning and from our perspective, it being maybe not that big of a deal and God just completely like strikes them with a disease and strikes mm. them down. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, Even some of the penalties maybe in the Le Levitical law is stoning people, yeah, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The flood God wiped out basically almost the entire earth. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So any of those elements where, it contrasts with, with a picture of 
the love of God right. that we like to focus on, and which I agree we should focus on because that is absolutely amazing and true of God. Any of those elements of, of him interacting with the world in a way of violence or terror mm-hmm. or any of those elements. Yeah. And I think a lot of people yeah. struggle with exactly those kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, that, um, and, you know, some people, and I'm, I'm sure you, you have a very good response to this, but some people would say, well, it's almost like it's two different uh, pictures of God, the Old Testament mm. God and the New Testament God. Um, mm. And I think a lot of people want to set those up as contrasts, um, whereas as someone who has degrees in both Old Testament and New Testament, <laughs> I would think you're someone who wants to hold those together yeah. and say, no, this is one triune God. Yes. Um, and he has acted in the world in in ways that maybe are mysterious to us, yeah. but nonetheless, they're recorded for us and yeah. they're given to us as scripture. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I'm, I'm very early on in my research, so I should just at this point just say <laughs> what my research is. Yeah, so you're in the PhD program here in Old right. Testament yeah. uh, at TEDS. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, in my dissertation, I will be focusing in on the wrath of God in the book of Psalms. Right. And so for a lot of my papers and, and such in different classes, I've been trying to focus in on the wrath of God in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think something that has really impacted me as I've been doing that is just seeing how much the theme of God's mitigation of his own wrath through mm-hmm. covenant is actually really consistent between the the two testaments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we see um, kind of in the beginning, we see this kind of sweeping wrath. Again, Noah's flood. Mm-hmm. We see the world being so broken um, and God kind of trying to purify it and bring his, his people back mm-hmm. to a place of relationship with him, back to a place of peace amongst themselves, mm-hmm. right? His yeah. wrath is directed towards injustice just as much as it is towards um, any element of rebellion against him. And so we see God trying to bring humanity back to how he originally created them to be in kind of these sweeping expressions of wrath. Mm. And then in the initiation of the covenant, we start to see the mitigation of his wrath through his covenant people. Mm -hmm. Right. So Abraham comes in as a figure that um, both, I think in the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative is meant to, to kind of mediate the wrath of God, right? You see him wrestling through the wrath of God over Sodom and Gomorrah mm, and mm-hmm. and God ultimately inviting him into that process saying, yeah, I, I want you to know <laughs> I'm doing this. I want you to kind of wrestle with me in this. Yeah. You know, what am I going to do in this instance? Yeah. Um, and then God's setting up the Israelite people to be a light to the nations, mm-hmm. right? Um, to be people that are meant to reflect God to the world in a way that invites them in. And it also, it means that his wrath will be squelched by covenant, right? Mm. Ultimately, we see that over and over and over. The Israelites are constantly rebelling against Yahweh and he is patient over and over and over. And when he warns of his wrath, which I think that's also really important, is we tend to think of God's wrath only as his retribution. Mm. But the Old Testament talks a lot about his his speaking in in wrath, his warning in wrath, all of those elements. Mm -hmm. And so um, when he does that, uh, 
it's the covenant that comes into that situation and mm -hmm. that ultimately squelches his actual practice or enactment of wrath, mm -hmm. right? And that same theme is continued through the New Testament, right? Ultimately, we are set free from the wrath of God through following the Son, right? Um, through faith in the Son, so that we no longer have to be the objects of wrath, even though we keep on sinning over <laughs> and over and over and over. We're no less sinful, right, than right. the Israelite people in the yeah. Old Testament. So, yeah. yeah. So speaking of the Old Testament, I'll pivot just a little bit here. You're yes. the fourth or fellow. Yeah. Um, but three of the uh, so, and the third from the Old Testament department, <laughs> which I just find a very interesting thing. I mean, part of it, I'm sure, is particularly with the first two, they knew one another. Okay. And so oh, there was probably a, a recruitment uh, element there. Okay. Um, and then Wilson, of course, from systematic theology and, and then now back to Old Testament. Yes. Um, and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about, is there something about studying the Old Testament maybe that is more intriguing uh, about bioethics. Yeah. I, or am I just making a connection that isn't there? No. <laughs> <laughs> Isogesis. <laughs> that's right. No, I think actually that same element of, I want to study the Old Testament because I want to wrestle through the difficult things in life. Mm. I feel that as I study the world of bioethics as well. I think, um, and tell me what you think of this, if you agree or not, but I think bioethics is actually dealing with the brokenness of the world in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. We're dealing with um, medicine because that means we have health issues, mm -hmm. right? right? So that means we have a broken world and we're dealing with the ethics of how we practice medicine because that means that there's practice of medicine that isn't for the benefit of the person you're practicing it on, right? right. Yeah, yeah. So- um, That potential is always there yeah. for, for harm rather than for help. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Um, and, I, and I think wrestling through um, what are ways that are good, what, what are good advancements for humankind mm -hmm. as we react to the brokenness of the world? And what are ways that are actually just kind of forcing us deeper into that brokenness mm -hmm. and, and causing us to lose our humanity even more? Yeah. Right? So, um, I kind yeah, of that's, a, that's a good way to good way to put it yeah 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 and of course parts of the old testament too are sort of deeply anthropo anthropological yeah um and anthropology is such a huge part of yeah. as our, our health our brokenness our sickness yeah um yeah so you you come to the world of bioethics with kind of significant personal experience in yeah. um as uh, from being a patient in healthcare yeah um and i just would be interested in whatever you'd like to share about your experience yeah. Over like the last five years or so, if I'm remembering kind yeah. of correctly. Good memory. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I have kidney disease. Um, I have a form of kidney disease called Alport syndrome. It's actually fairly rare. Uh, it's basically a miscoding in type four collagen in the body. And so it's not just a kidney disease. It can also affect hearing and um, certain elements of the eye, uh, anywhere that that type four collagen is present in the body. So I do have some hearing loss. I don't have any of the eye abnormalities, but I, I had kidney decline. So I was diagnosed in 2013. Um, it was just kind of through routine checkups. They were noticing that 
I was anemic, mm. right? So my hemoglobin was low, but that my iron stores were fine. Mm. And and for normal people, those two go together. Mm-hmm. And so they said that's usually a flag for something wrong with the kidneys. And I was being stubborn about it. I was like, <laughs> I don't have time to look into this, right? I'm a student. This was when I was at Biola. Yeah. And this and was I'm young. As I, was, I'm he- I feel fine. Yeah, right. Yeah. I feel fine. Yeah. Right. Um, and I'm so thankful for this. They kept pushing it. So every time I went back for just a checkup, if it was strep throat or whatever, they would check my <laughs> blood work and uh. um, check up on things. And they finally ran the blood test on their own to check my kidney function, my EGFR. And at that point, I was about 50% functioning when they finally oh, wow. checked it. Yeah. So obviously at that point, I said, oh, okay, maybe I need to take <laughs> this seriously. Yeah. So uh, I went through the process at Mayo, officially diagnosed 2013. And then from 2000 to th- 2013 to 2019. So yeah, it took, you know, a few years. Um, I finally reached end stage renal disease Mm. and needed a kidney transplant. So, um, I would say that was a hard process, Mm -hmm. obviously, (laughs) right? Um, there's so many elements of that process that I didn't expect. I, you know, I was in classes at that point. Um, I, I needed to be in order to have student health insurance. Mm. And so I was taking classes as I was doing the transplant. And in my head, I was like, I can just have a kidney transplant. And like a week later, jump <laughs> right back into homework. Yeah, right. Right. Um, and <laughs> I had some complications with surgery um, that meant it kind of damaged the kidney temporarily. And mm. so the new kidney was not waking up like it should. And so it looked like rejection. It mm. looked like my body was rejecting the kidney for a good few weeks. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, all that to say, it meant that that process, that healing process was just a bit more complicated than I was expecting it to be. So, you know, I look back on that experience. There's certain like smells that bring me back to the hospital. Oh, room. yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um certain elements that I can kind of still feel like the trauma my body carries from that experience Mm -hmm. in certain ways. And at the same time, I learned so much through that experience. Um, I had a friend, she, she'd been through a lot in her life and we were talking through whether or not we would take back some of the difficult things Mm. that, um, you know, we'd been through in our lives. And she was like, yeah, obviously, right? <laughs> I'm not going to say, no, please let me go through this terrible experience yeah, over yeah. again. I'm going to trade right? that right in. Yeah. yeah. If you could learn the lessons you learn from suffering without the suffering, of course well, we would do yeah. <laughs> But um, with the fact that we live in a broken world, I did learn so much through that suffering and through that experience. And I, I think it forced me to think about my mortality in a way that I wouldn't have at like, you know, when I was originally diagnosed, I think it was 23 or 24. So what 23 or 24 year old faces their mortality. And so I think it forced me to think through who am I? What is my purpose in life? And if I were to die tomorrow, what would that mean? Mm -hmm. Um, What would that mean for who I am in relation to God, who I am in in relation to the world and what my purpose is in the world? Mm -hmm. And I had to really 
think through that reality and and wrestle through for myself the entitlement I felt in having mm. a healthy and long life. Mm, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. I was 23. Why should I have this? Right. Kidney disease is for someone that's 90 and already <laughs> reaching the end of their right, life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't the arc that life is supposed to take. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but when I really wrestled through that, I came to realize I'm not entitled to a long life. Where did I get that idea? Mm. Right. Um, and I think when I really wrestled through that reality, that I'm not entitled to anything. Mm-hmm. Not that a long life is not good. Of course, that's good. And of course, we're going to pursue that. But I'm not entitled to it. Yeah, yeah. Right. When I really wrestled through that reality, I came to so much more peace about the entire process of the, the kidney disease. And when I approached the transplant and the possibility that there was still death at the end, which ultimately Mm -hmm. that was not likely, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, most kidney transplants are successful, especially at my age, I'm young. Yeah. But in wrestling through the possibility of that reality, what if I did, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, So I, um, you can, you can just tell me, I don't want to talk about that and that'll be fine. No No. judgment. I'm a Um, pretty open person. (laughs) So the process of, um, finding a donor oh yeah so i and i don't know your story yeah um did you have an do you know your donor or was it like um you know you're just on the list and something came in like yeah just uh talk me through kind of some of that and um yeah your your thoughts about all that oh man yeah (laughs) if if you will but if you know again no judgment if that's just not an area you want to get into oh i appreciate that thank you (laughs) No, that is definitely a difficult process. So, um, originally, my sister was kind of right off the bat hoping to be my donor. Mm. Uh, So, we expected that to be the reality as we headed into, you know, my kidney transplant evaluation and all of those elements. I had friends and such offering to be Mm. a donor for me, which is always an amazing offer. Mm -hmm. I always struggled with it myself still, because I think for yourself as the recipient, you feel the weight of what someone else is offering and Mm -hmm. you recognize the reality that my sickness is causing them harm. Mm -hmm. And that's the last thing you want, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's no cure for kidney disease outside of somebody else coming to harm for my good. And Mm -hmm. I, I definitely wrestled through that reality. Um, but I always felt the generosity and the weight of someone's offer Mm -hmm. to give me a kidney. And I was amazed at the people who did offer. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's definitely like those closest friends that are like, of course I would give a kidney for you. Mm -hmm. And then there's this person from church, like maybe you had like a couple conversations with, you know, super well, but they're like, I would give a kidney for you. (laughs) And you're like, oh my goodness. Right. right, Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I definitely wrestled through the tension of every offer coming from someone. And that goes back to the living in a fallen world that like for your healing to whatever degree you're healed, like you still have kidney disease. (laughs) Um, that it, some harm comes to someone else, whether it's they volunteer to donate the kidney or if, you know, something terrible happens and their family donates their kidney. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, 
And I think probably as I was wrestling through those realities, in the back of my head, I was like, oh, but ultimately, like, thank you for that offer, but I won't need your kidney because I have right. my sister, right? Yeah. Um, and then my sister goes through the entire process of being tested. It's quite an extensive process. Um, so I'm sure it's different for every place you go, but for Mayo, there's a psychological, I, I did my transplant through Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Um, there's a psychological evaluation, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are currently struggling with depression, if you've had any thoughts of suicide in the past, they're going to automatically count you out, mm. right? Because they recognize the reality that what you're about to go through is a psychologically difficult experience. Mm -hmm. There's no other way to put it. I mean, not merely by the fact that you're going to go through pain of surgery, mm -hmm. but you're actually giving up an organ of your body. Right. I don't know if people fully realize how impactful that is. That's like a part of your body. Yeah. It's a part of who you are, even if it's just an organ that you don't always think about. Right. Um, and, and it puts you at some long-term risk. Yeah. Because now yeah. you're down to one kidney. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The one good thing about that is, I don't know if you knew this, um, but if you donate a kidney and then later on in life, you end up needing a kidney, you go automatically to the top of the oh, list. Oh, yes. interesting. Mm -hmm. interesting. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So my sister goes through the entire process. And then at the very last stage, um, they say, oh, wait, her disease is inherited. My disease is mm -hmm. inherited. Right. What if you have the same thing? Mm. And all of a sudden at the very last stage, which <laughs> they probably should have done in the beginning, but at the very last stage, they nix it and say, no, we're not going to take your kidney. Um, so they didn't test her for the disease or it just. They did. Okay. And it, I mean, it, they did like a genetic test yeah. and it came back negative, but they were still. Oh, okay. I see. Just was, the maximum caution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maximum yeah. caution. Yeah. yeah. That makes I, sense. You experience that a lot. Um, when it comes to the donor, which oh, is sure. so important, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, maximum caution, um, whatever protection you can create to not have the other person feel manipulated or pressured yeah. into giving the kidney. So when someone goes in to be tested to be my donor, um, I'm not told anything about the process. And in fact, that person could go through the entire process of being tested be approved and they have to tell me Mayo Clinic would not tell me, mm. Hey, we've had someone go through the process and they've been approved uh, because ultimately they want to create every possibility for that person to back out. Right. Right. right yeah. Which totally makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So my sister was denied at the last stage. Um, definitely a difficult process for her and mm -hmm. for myself. Yeah. Um, I think she really wrestled through kind of feeling stuck and feeling like she had um, psychologically prepared herself to do this. And then for mm -hmm. them to tell her that she couldn't do it, mm -hmm. right? She had to really wrestle through that reality rather than having it be her free will and her choice yeah, yeah. to say, no, I'm, I'm willing to take the risk. She felt like they were, they were cornering her mm -hmm. and making the decision for her. Yeah. Kind of strong arming her. A little yeah. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then really, I just grace of God in so many ways, my aunt, uh, my aunt Katie, Katie, uh, her well, Jeannie, she stepped up and said, hey, I, I've just, you know, I've been praying and I feel convicted to be tested to be your donor. Mm. And so um, she went through the whole process, 
And um, at the end, she was technically approved. She was a good match for me in most ways, Mm -hmm. except for the fact that so she had been um, exposed to mono at some point in her life, right? Most people are exposed to mono. Mm -hmm. I was a part of the minority population that had never been exposed to mono. And while that doesn't sound like that big of a deal, when I received the kidney from her, there's the possibility of receiving Mm -hmm. that monovirus through the reception of the kidney. Mm -hmm. And in an immunosuppressed state, that has the possibility of um, growing and growing and growing and actually becoming cancerous. Mm, And so at first they were going to deny her as a donor. and. my my aunt, she fought it, right? <laughs> she was like, oh, no, this is not happening. She's like, you will take my kidney and you will put it in her body. <laughs> and I, to take it, she is, uh, um, in spite of being family, yeah. she, somehow she's not involved in the genetic right. um, part of passing on the possibility of the, this disease. Exactly. So that disease comes from my dad's side. Um, okay. And technically, we don't actually have kidney disease in my dad's line, in my dad's family. It's a thin lining in the kidneys that right. allows blood to leak through more than it should. And that just, they thought at least that was a random mutation, right? It's carried on the same chromosomes as Alport syndrome. And so it was a random mutation and became Alport um, okay. in my case. Yeah. That we have actually now questioned because my sister has actually now been diagnosed with Alport syndrome, not the one that was being tested <laughs> to be a donor. So, right. I mean, that would have been like, whew, right? Yeah. Um, but my other sister, who she always had kind of the same issues that I had from childhood. So, from childhood, we could see that something was wrong. Um, there was blood moving through my body more than it should, mm. Right. Um, so I remember having lots of appointments in at children's hospital as a kid. Um, and they were like, we think there's more going on here than we're seeing, but we would have to do evasive testing Mm -hmm. to figure out why that is. And so, um, they said, just leave it, you know, when she's older, we'll do more testing. And ultimately if they had done more testing, they would have, they would have found kidney disease, it doesn't really matter. They wouldn't have been able to do anything. It's mm-hmm. not like it would have, you know, saved my kidneys if right. they had figured it out then. Yeah. But all that to say, my sister also had that same issue mm-hmm. as a young girl. And so that makes sense mm-hmm. that she would be the one that would also now be diagnosed. So if that's true, the best guess then is that both my parents had to be recessive carriers of Alport syndrome, that okay. it was not just a random mutation. Mm. So, but that's also the crazy chances, right? Of two people with the right. recessive gene of Alport syndrome coming together. So, yeah. yeah. So to uh, draw it back around a little bit to the Orr Fellowship. Yeah. Um, you've been in this position now since the end of May, beginning of June. Yes. Um, you've been reading, reading widely uh, how that's we right. start off all the Orr Fellows. <laughs> right, right. Um, and uh, so yeah. I'm just curious what kind of issues have begun to really ca- capture your attention. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously with that history, yeah, <laughs> I would think <laughs> transplant, um, although maybe you're so tired of thinking about transplant medicine. I'm not, a, not even a little bit interested in that. So, uh, you know, sort of what, what kinds of things are sticking out to you is like, Oh, that's, that's an issue I could really hone in on a little bit more. Yeah. 
You know, I, I think the biggest thing that has impacted me as I've been reading is uh, this theology of embodiment mm. and how impactful it is in so many different areas. Um, you know, I mean, even me talking about the fact that to give up a kidney impacts the person, that means there's a certain sense of embodiment of mm -hmm. that organ mm -hmm. that you have a connection to it beyond what you fully even realize, right? So I think this idea of embodiment, um, it impacts us socially, relationally, um, it impacts us theologically. Mm -hmm. um, it's how we experience other people as physically embodied people and how we experience ourselves as finite embodied human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there's a lot more to dig into in that and a lot more that should be integrated with our theological development, our understanding of the Old Testament, our understanding of um, who we are as created beings, who we will be as resurrected bodies, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? All mm -hmm. of those elements. So definitely that aspect of embodiment has been really interesting. Um, and I think just it's not a particular issue, but more thinking through how do we make ethical choices based on certain values versus the avoidance of suffering, mm -hmm. right? So uh, Maylander, Mylander. Mylander. Mylander, yeah. okay. In his book, um, uh, Primer on Bioethics, right? He talks about how we cannot have as our greatest value the avoidance of all suffering, right? Right. Um, I mean, that's been my experience too, <laughs> right? As I've talked about. So, um, yeah, I think thinking through then what is our greatest value? Mm. How do we balance the fact that suffering in itself is not good, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But that the, the reality that we live in a broken world means that suffering sometimes needs to happen for the good of humanity. Right. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. I mean, yeah. just to go back to the kidney transplant, yeah. I mean, the donation of a kidney yeah. is a major surgery. Absolutely. And yeah. so... Um, you know, we might not necessarily first think of it in terms of suffering. Yes. Um, but that's a major surgery. And so there was some recovery period for your aunt. Yes. Um, that was involved in that as yeah. well as for you, of course. Um, yeah, I think one of the areas where we really see that tension, um, kind of set at its maximum is in some of the end of life treatment decisions. Yeah. Uh, John yeah. Kilner talks about this in uh, the talk he gave at the 2019 uh, bioethics conference uh, in his own disease process. So he has leukemia and um, he, he sets up this tension or he identifies this tension between under treatment, mm. um, which at the extreme is euthanasia or assisted suicide and over treatment where we're just this, we have this sort of vitalism and, and we uh, take every measure and do every step um, even when there's um, clear futility yeah. to do it, or even, even sometimes even um, additional suffering that comes about because of the treatment. And so, but it's a real tension, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, the under treatment, over treatment, and uh, it takes real wisdom to navigate what is the appropriate treatment 
Um, and again, that's at, at its extreme in some sense at the end of life, but throughout life, um, there there's this tension between overtreatment and undertreatment. Mm. Um, and I think that gets at least somewhat to what the question you're asking. And then, um, you had told me you were, you were going to ask, how, how were you going to phrase the question? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Here's what's happening. I'm reading all these cool things in these books, right? And I go and I talk to my friends and I'm <laughs> like, dude, oh man, yeah, we cannot have as our, our greatest value, the avoidance of all suffering. This is so good. Let's dig into this more. What does this mean for our lives? Um, and then they're like, yeah, but but real people are suffering, yeah, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's the tension between trying to avoid all suffering and yeah. trying appropriately to alleviate suffering right. where we can. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, uh, when we talk about artificial insemination, right, something like that, um, we want to dig into what are the long term or the underlying ethical issues that might help us make a decision whether artificial insemination is ethically, morally viable or not. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's one thing to think about those issues and talk through those issues and be like, yeah, this makes all the pieces come together ethically and morally. And it's another thing to actually walk with a person that's dealing with infertility and saying, I want to have a child of my own. Right. And how do you walk with them through wrestling through the reality of, of that suffering and that loss Mm -hmm. of Again, the reality that there is infertility in the world reflects the reality of a broken and fallen world. And so how much do we balance some of these advancements, uh, technological, medicinal, whatever it is, as a way to say, okay, this is undoing the brokenness of the world and offering a sense of redemption? Mm -hmm. Or on the other end, how do we then balance it and say, well, actually, what if this is actually just... Um, stripping us of our humanity. Mm-hmm. What if this is actually thrusting us deeper into a point of um, brokenness and darkness and we don't even realize it, right? Because mm-hmm. there are other elements at play that we're not fully thinking through, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the factors that comes up in that is just all of the variables yeah. and all of the considerations that can go into decisions like that. So you, you mentioned theology of embodiment, yeah. um, which tends to be something of a weak point among Protestant evangelicals. Yeah. Um, and so to, um, to look at reproductive technologies as something that assist our bodies mm-hmm. or as something that replace our bodies, I mean, that's a significant difference. And of course, different Christians come down on that in different ways, um, depending on how they weigh certain factors, how they evaluate certain factors about um for example, the one flesh nature of yes. the marriage relationship, right? Um, which uh, our Catholic friends take um, a very uh, strong and decided view on, uh, whereas evangelicals tend to have um, quite divergent <laughs> views on when it comes to reproductive <laughs> technologies. Yeah, um, and so it really is uh, a a big part of it. Really, is weighing all of these competing factors. So the avoidance of suffering, the elimination of suffering, uh, the very strong and clearly God directed desire to have a child and not just to have a child, but to have a child 
of one's own that is the fruit of the uh, partnership of husband and wife. Mm-hmm. You know, this child that looks like us. Um, yeah, it's it's a very, very difficult area and probably um, infertility reproductive technologies is one of the kind of maximal areas of um of loss of suffering of disappointment so i think you know one 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 factor or one important factor is is to name it you know Mm -hmm. this is a loss Mm -hmm. uh it's actually multiple losses um and that those things have to be grieved um and so even if someone um uses all the reproductive technologies and they have a child they've still experienced loss because they have friends who accidentally got pregnant Mm. <laughs> or decided I'm going to get pregnant next month because that's going to work out really well for my career. And that's exactly what happened. And so the inability to do that is a loss, no matter what ultimately ends up happening. Um, and so that's what, that's what I mean by there's just multiple losses when it comes to infertility. Um, and it can be, it's, it's just a very, very difficult road to navigate. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I think bioethics is so important in terms of preparing for what could happen, because when you're in the midst of that situation, um, on the one hand, the way that medicine is set up to operate is you just walk through a series of steps and um, we try X, then we try Y, and then we try Z. I mean, that's just the way that it's set up to do. And there's no real space built into there to say, well, we're going to try X, but you should really start to think about whether or not you want to do Y. I mean, it's just not set up that way. Mm-hmm. And so for the Christian couple who uh, finds themselves in the midst of infertility, boy, what would be great is if they had already thought about X, Y, and Z. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, in in some ways, our churches aren't set up to have that happen. Yeah. Uh, some, you know, I've most premarital counseling, I think probably talks some about um, contraception, but if, you know, you're probably not going to really get into it. Well, what, what if it turns out that you have problems with your fertility? That, that, that's not coming up. I don't think in a lot of premarital counseling sessions uh, and probably not entirely appropriate to. So <laughs> um, I know when we, when my wife and I did our premarital counseling, the guy told us um, the difference between dating and being married is not that big. The difference between being married and being parents is enormous. <laughs> and, it, and it was kind of like, let's revisit when it comes to that. Time. Um, anyway, but I digress. Yeah, no, that was good. I, I appreciate what you said. I, I think so often in the Christian world, we try and, and, and be like, hey, this is what's good and ethical and moral. And so let's just be like, this is good. So you shouldn't be experiencing suffering from this reality, right? Mm-hmm. When... Ultimately, first and foremost, it needs to be grieved, right? Mm-hmm. It needs yeah. to be lamented. Yeah. That is the reality of a broken world. If yeah. we skirt past grieving the brokenness of this world, we have done people a great disservice. Yeah. So Yeah. And I've tried in the churches I've been in um, with varying degrees of success to uh, pull the pastor aside sometime early in May or late in April yeah. <laughs> and uh, try and get him thinking a little bit more broadly about yeah. mother's day. Cause yeah. boy, that's a tough day for a lot of people, whether yes. you, uh, whether you're a mother and the child you have, isn't, isn't just the obedient, perfect child. Yeah. Uh, some, some people have very difficult relationships with their own mothers um, or they have lost their mother already. Um, and then of course people, uh, women who struggled with infertility. 
Uh, Mother's Day is a really difficult day. Um, And so I I really try and um, as gently as I can try and persuade pastors to take a a bit more of a broad view on particularly on Mother's Day. Uh, It's great. It's wonderful to recognize mothers and no one wants to take that away. Um, But we also have to, as you say, grieve with those who who grieve uh, over over Mother's Day. Uh, which, of course, brings us back to <laughs> the bioethics questions, yes. um, which is, you know, how do we think about our bodies and um, our marriages and our children and making children, making life? You know, we talk about um, making life, faking life, taking life. Yes. Um, yeah. These are enormous questions. Um, and what I try and do with people is just communicate my own convictions about it, which yeah. I feel like are pretty well studied. <laughs> And, um, uh, and try and expose them to a, a sort of a broad range of opinions uh, on on these things, but really try and make the case for why I see things the way that I see them um, and, and why I've come to the convictions that I've come to. Um, but I also try not to, uh, to judge people who come to different conclusions than I have because um, uh, I'm very grateful whenever anyone takes the time to really pray through and work through the questions and the ethics of all of the reproductive technologies, whether it's artificial insemination or um, IVF or any of those things. I mean, I think there are a few things when it comes to reproductive technologies that are just clearly uh, out of bounds. Mm -hmm. And I would probably argue a little more (laughs) strenuously with folks who really wanted to embrace things like uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis um, so there are things I discourage and then things that I sort of actively, <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, the desire for children, uh, and as you said, a children of your own, a child yeah. of your own is, it's very strong. It's God given. I mean, it's clear from scripture. Um, and so the reality of when when a couple is faced with infertility mm-hmm. the reality that they need to deal with that they're going to be forced to deal with um is uh is quite quite difficult yeah quite difficult and so i want to be sensitive to that yeah. um as we talk through the ethics uh of things uh, wilson your predecessor had said that all pastors need to be amateur bioethicists <laughs> and i would say all good christian ethicists should become amateur pastoral yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, care yeah. carers informers um because yeah, uh, you know there's so many pieces of bioethics the sort of the medical realities the ethical yeah. questions but yeah. then I, there's a there's a very large pastoral dimension to how we communicate those things to people yeah um and uh and that's just as important as any of the rest of it like if you have the ethics right and the sort of pastoral dimension wrong, you've, you've still gone wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I'm really grateful that you're here at CBHD. Uh, I appreciate you sharing so much of your story with us. And I know there are other pieces we could delve into. Uh, I'm certain in all of our lives, um, you're doing a great job and I really look forward to continuing to work with you and we will follow up with an interview whenever it is that you depart from us. <laughs> Hopefully a long, long time from now uh, to kind of see how things went over the course of your time here and um, and if things moved in different directions or kind of how that worked out. But um, I'm really glad to have you here. Thank you. Thanks. It's been a privilege and a delight already. I love it. Great. Yes. 
That was an interview with CBHD or fellow and TED's PhD student, Anna Volima. As I mentioned earlier, I've never seen a greater demand for sound, reliable information addressing the issues of bioethics from a biblical viewpoint. In short, I need your help. Please consider an end-of-year gift to support the work of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. You can give through our website, cbhd.org. Simply click on Donate in the left-hand column of any webpage on our site. Thank you. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project in the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. My name is Matthew Epinette, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast. <laughs>